Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Celebration time, come on! Woo! It's a celebration! <laughs> Get ready, Troy, let him out! Let him out! Celebration good time. time, come on! Woo! Yeah, here we are! Dark Night of the Podcast! 100th episode, Troy! Number 100! Hundred, Roger. Did you ever believe that we would get to this point? Oh, what was it? Three years ago when we recorded our little Hellbent episode in 40 minutes and we thought, you know, hey, this is kind of fun. <laughs> Did you ever think we were going to get to 100? I didn't think we were going to get past fucking 10, to be honest. <laughs> like, I mean, when we started doing this, it was uh, completely on a whim. And, you know, it's just because it's solely based off the fact that Troy and I could just talk so much about horror movies. We're like, well, we might as well just make it available for the world to hear it. Um, but here we are. And, you know, I've seen a lot of podcasts that haven't been able to maintain for, you know, various reasons. And it's a bummer. I've seen some, I, I've heard some I really enjoy. And then they unfortunately have to, like, fold and you know for personal reasons or just time commitment i mean goddamn troy and fans like let's be real this is a commitment like troy and i are recording (laughs) and watching movies and recording a majority of the week let me just be clear (laughs) and i'm and i'm glad you bring that up because i think it's something that people don't realize and and we certainly didn't realize that when we first started this podcast you know the, the commitment that it takes because I feel like we go through the films very thoroughly where we, we cover them extensively. That's why our, our episodes are upwards of two hours now. I know that I watch the films many, many times more than twice. And I know you do too, to take the notes, um, the recording, you know, that takes some time. And then the whole editing process to get the editing, you know, if you want the podcast to sound decent, it has to be edited. I know uh, there are some podcasts that maybe don't care about that and just record and then immediately put the episode out. But I like to go through and edit things together and, and make things sound cohesive and get rid of our our flubs and get rid of our ums and ahs in this. So it does take some time, but you know what? You know what keeps us going, Roger? And I think that when I say this, it might sound cliche, but really what gets me excited and what really motivates me to keep doing this, because trust me, and I know you've been there too. There have been many times where I'm like, you know what? I just, ugh, do I really want to keep doing this? The time, you know, we, we get busy, you know, when you, when you were working on meat, I know you were just exhausted, but what keeps me going is our listeners and the feedback that we get, you know, it makes it for me, for me worth it. But yeah, I cannot believe we have done this 100 times. Actually, we've done it way more than 100 times because we have about 60 episodes total up on our Patreon. If you want to give us a little hundredth episode gift, go under our Patreon and subscribe, get get access to those. So we've done this quite a bit. And 
You know, I mean, we've had some highs, we've had some lows. Uh, I was looking back at our episode list to kind of think about what episodes I think are some of my favorites. And gosh, I I'm I was reminded about all the wonderful guests that we've had. Oh my gosh, we've been so lucky to like, you know, within our first hundred episodes, manage to have some recognizable, talented individuals who've, you know, kind of... Uh, blessed us with their presence talking about movies that are really personal to them like let's look at the time that we had kathy Pullwell on talking about night of the demons which she like starred in as the final girl like how lucky for us to be able to talk with her about her actual experience making the film that was really for me as like a fanboy podcast aside that was just a treat to be able to talk with her and and hear her reminisce about something that she's clearly very very fond of being a part of her life. I mean, it was like a personal experience getting to listen to some of that. So we've been really lucky with some of the experiences we've had on the podcast as we've come into our, you know, I would say our full form now that we really know the jive of what we're doing. Because at first, Troy, (laughs) you and I, like if you listen to some of those early episodes and we've been talking about redoing some of them, but like at first you and I were kind of shaky legs, you know? (laughs) Like we uh we were finding our footing, but I really think it gelled and it, it's paid off for us. I, I'm really happy with where we're at. Me too, me too. And like I said, the feedback that we get from listeners is always quite uh, positive, and so we're gonna keep doing it because yeah, we we love it, it. It is even though sometimes it is hard to get the time and and, and motivation and everything to do it. When me and Roger get on our podcast recording platform and actually start talking about the films, I have a blast. So we plan on, this is just the first hundred of hopefully many hundreds to come. So yeah, yeah, like you said, we've been lucky. We had Jamie Blanks on, the director of Urban Legend and Valentine. That was probably the highlight of the entire podcast experience for me, of course, having such a prolific horror director on the show to discuss the process of making urban legend, which is a beloved film by many, many, many horror fans. So, and we've had the death drop gorgeous boys on who are getting ready to drop their next film, St. Drogo. So we've been quite lucky, you know, it's a hundred episodes and what better film to discuss for our hundredth episode than the film that inspired the name of our podcast. And that is the 1981 made for television horror film, dark night of the scarecrow. Troy, I have purposely sat on this title ever since you explained the reasoning for the title of the podcast. I do not know much about this film, and I have certainly never seen it up until this point. Um, And, you know, going into this, I, I knew that you were passionate about the title, that you wanted our podcast to be honoring the title and it also sounds catchy like let's be fucking real but also like i thought that it would be a real a real treat <laughs> you know something something exciting for both the listeners and for you and for i to make it a point that whenever we review this title for it to be one of our you know pinnacle episodes and i think the hundredth episode for this title for you being someone who knows quite a lot about it and myself being someone who knows absolutely nothing I think this is going to be a great fucking conversation. When I decided I wanted to do a podcast, I think one of the most difficult things about creating a podcast is coming up with a title. And I listen to tons of true crime podcasts. And like one of my favorite uh, true crime slash comedy podcasts is the last podcast on the left. I've always been a fan of that. And so I, th- I thought, you know, what, that was really clever of them to take a title of a film and 
add the word podcast to it. So I started to brainstorm and I was like, what are some films that have really cool titles that I could use the word podcast to replace? Now, I'm not saying by any means, Roger, I don't want to be, I don't want to disillusion anybody here. While I like this film, let's be real here. Like I'm not super passionate about this film. It, it certainly would not make my list of like top 50 horror films of all time. I will say though that I saw it as a child and it really had an effect on me. It, there were some memorable scenes that I, that stuck with me years after I saw it. And, you know, it got that beautiful new Blu-ray release a couple years ago with the, with the cool cover art of the scarecrow with the pitchfork. Uh, so that I, I'm scanning through and I saw the title. I'm like, you know, oh my God, I love that movie. And I hadn't seen it for years, but the title sounds catchy. So that's why I came up with the title. It's not because like, oh my God, this is my favorite movie of all time. I'm so passionate about this movie. I like the movie watching it again, definitely enlightened me, but I think it's a catchy title, but, and I still am very happy that our podcast name is derived from this film. I don't think that that's a negative thing at all, because I think this film has so many positives to it, particularly for the time period that it came out in. Listen, I'm going to just throw it all out on the table. As someone who knew nothing at all what to anticipate going into this, I thought it was just a straight up slasher, to be honest. Boy, was I pleasantly surprised with this film. And I am not saying that because it was reflected in our title. I am saying it because I genuinely, really really, truly enjoyed this film-going experience. You know, whenever you hear made-for-TV movie, I think, like, as a horror movie fan, I think your guards go up. Like, you know, you have a certain level of expectation. Uh, You anticipate that it is not going to be nearly as effective as a theatrical release, or at least an R-rated or above, you know, rated film uh, could possibly be. And this movie really shows you that while it may be practically borderline void of gore. I mean, there is like one sequence in the beginning of the movie where you see some gun, gun, like bullet wounds, but overall it's pretty void of gore. Like there is not that much blood at all in this movie. It amazes me how impactful it still manages to be, especially in some of those setups. Some of these sequences in this movie really defied my expectations. And I was left really impressed with this movie. I'm surprised that it was as good as it ended up being. Right. I'm glad that you enjoyed the film because like I said, even though I would not classify it as one of my favorite horror films of all time, it a again, memorable. I saw it as a kid. It has always stuck with me. And now watching it again, now three times in the last two days to prepare for this episode. I mean, there are nuances to this film and yeah, the, the setups to the, to the death sequences and the mystery that the film is able to develop in terms of who the killer is. Is it, is it really this ghost or is it, who is it? I, I, I like a lot of things. The acting across the board is pretty damn solid. I mean, it's a pretty recognizable cast. Yeah, going into this, I was super excited to watch this again. I wanted to, I mean, to really sit down and give it my undivided attention. And boy, yeah, I mean, it, it definitely is quite the experience. If you haven't seen the film, Please don't let the fact that it's a made-for-television film deter you because originally this was never supposed to be a made-for-television film. It wasn't written as one. They had every intention of it being a theatrical release. Unfortunately, financing and, and whatnot fell through in terms of making it a feature you know, theatrical released film. So television 
production company picked it up and it was one of the movies of the week right around Halloween time, which is fitting because the film has a Halloween type vibe to it. But I, I kind of would just want to get into it and, and and discuss this because I'm really am curious about a lot of your thoughts on how the film unfolds. Guys, if you haven't seen the film, stop the episode and it's on Shudder. Uh, if you want to check it out, it's a beautiful beautiful restoration it looks great honestly check it out and then come back to us because yeah we, we're going to talk about spoilers and there are some sp- things that could be spoiled in the film that you probably want to be taken surprised but right away i mean i think the one thing that really roger caught my eye watching this film is the cinematography for a made for television stunning so, yes is it not and you get that right from the opening shot uh, you know, the crane shot that's sweeping over this desolate farmland and into this like cornfield and and you get this windmill as the credits are title credits are playing over the, the screen and there's this windmill that's ominously turning and then the camera floats over to this field and you 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 start to hear faintly singing and the camera just swoops in closer and closer and closer and you realize you're watching a man, a full-grown man, sitting in the middle of a field with a little girl. And it becomes very apparent right away that the the man, even though he's a full-grown man, uh, has the mental capacity of, of a child, right? And this is Bubba Ritter, who is played by Larry Drake, guys, who we all know and love from Dr. Giggles. Dr. Giggles. <laughs> He played, yeah, he played Dr. Giggles in the 90s film, Dr. Giggles, along with Holly Marie Combs. Yes. So, yeah, so a, f- a familiar face right off the bat. And let me tell you, oh, you know, he's not in the film very long, but what he manages to do and how he manages to make the viewer feel for this character is quite an achievement, I think. I mean, you right away are, I think, and I don't know about you, Roger, but you're right away very smitten with this character. You know uh, you can just see he he like reeks of just innocence, good intentions. Um, he's having this interaction with this little girl. Let's talk about this little girl, this Mary Mary Lee, played by Tanya Crow, who actually gives a really strong performance as a child actress. Oh yeah, she's quite um, <laughs> domineering, right? <laughs> she has a lot of screen presence, but that's one thing I have to say about practically every actor that appears in this film. I mean, one of the things that jumps out to me and right off the bat with this scene, but it carries through the whole movie is how strong the performances are and how well the characters are written. This is a film that is, you know, we've used the term lazy with a couple of recent reviews, uh, you know, lazy, you know, lazy writing, lazy direction. It just feels like it wasn't inspired I feel like every shot in this film is is a piece of art. I mean, I'm shocked at how good it looks. And you're right, from that very first crane shot, the usage of this location, this small town, the settings, I mean, even when they're in a dirt field, they manage to make it look beautiful and dramatic with shadow play and good lighting. It's just really impressive what they pulled off over the course of this whole film. But the characters operating within this film are fantastically crafted. The characters who are meant to be sympathetic or likable or endearing are extremely so. I mean, wait till we talk about that mother, Mrs. Ritter. Oh, oh, what? I mean, that broad. Yes, she's my favorite. She stands out. But like, 
you look at the the, the the likable characters, they're all likable. You look at the villains in this film, and they are detestable. Some of the best character writing I think we've seen in a hot minute. I Again, I'm shocked that this title offers such quality, well-written characters. I can tell you for a 100% fact, I have not hated a fucking character in a film more than this fucking old Otis Hazelrig. Oh. What a fucking detestable, Ooh. horrible character. From the second he's on screen, Roger, you just you fucking hate this guy with every ounce of your body. And it's Charles Durning, who's an amazing actor. Uh, I mean, he is phenomenal in this role, and it's no wonder that consecutively, two years after he did this film, he got uh, he got nominated for two different Oscars for Best Supporting Actors, one for The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas with Dolly Parton, and then the following year, I can't think of it, um, something men, but he was nominated two years in a row for an Oscar, and it's, I mean, he's a, this is an amazing performance, particularly for a made-for-television film, but we'll get to him because we have to finish out this opening scene, so you see that there's a friendship between this little girl who's probably, what, nine, I think it's mentioned she's nine years old, and then this full grown man who is mentioned he's 36 but he has the he has the mental capacity of a child probably like a 4 year old and she's very in control of this friendship she she chastises him for squeezing a flower too hard and she demands that he picks her another one and he he does and he gives it to her gently and then she gives him this flower lay that she made and she puts it around his neck and she tells him that now she has to kiss him but right away he's like no I don't want to you know, she's like, come on, Bubba, you got him. He's like shaking his head all coyly. He's like, no, 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 no. And she's like, okay, then I'm going to take it away from you. And finally he like gives in and he lets her give uh, him a peck on the cheek. In the meantime, we see Otis Hazelrig, played by Charles Durning, watching this unfold through binoculars in his postal get up because that's all he wears throughout the whole film. Literally his costume, the budget for his costume had to be super cheap because he's in the same clothes the entire film he is the town postmaster so he's always in his postmaster outfit but he's watching and right away you can tell he's just like not happy about this grown man and this little girl playing together the fact that he's introduced and only shown in his postman garb i think is a really strong choice in the depiction that he is he is a very disturbed and hostile angry little man and he certainly thinks that his opinion and his choices hold hierarchy over other people's uh yet we look at him in the film and and he's depicted as just an everyday individual he's the mailman nothing more it's not like it's the sheriff it's not like it's some military sergeant he is the mailman and that really gives him uh an aspect of just sheer like who the fuck do you think you are <laughs> to come about coming to this town and be such a piece of shit? And I, I do also want to say regarding, you know, regarding the depiction of Bubba, on the other hand, when you look at individuals with special needs in film played by actors who are not that, a lot of performances don't hold up. A lot of them can come off as offensive, not genuine over the top, you know, especially from these older era films, it can often be something that just doesn't sit well with me as a viewer. But something about this performance seems so very genuine. It's not the first time this actor played 
an individual with special needs. He he actually had, I think, a, a long running, I forget what the series was, but he played, again, a, a character with special needs. And you can tell that he's an actor who took it with great, um, an element of, I think, great respect for the situation. Uh, great, uh, he tries to uh, apply a layer of dignity to, to the character. Um, and I love the fact that right away, Bubba is still trying to make good choices um, and be respectful of this little girl. He is truly her friend and nothing more. And it is never something creepy. And in fact, you look at the two of them and you think that he really is kind of her protector, which comes into play here in a moment. But he genuinely just cares so much about her. And that being a, a, a character trait for Bubba really makes for the rest of the film to be that much, have that much more emotional heft and meaning behind it. The little amount of time you see him on camera, he truly does pack such an emotional punch that boy, oh fucking boy, after what happens, do you want to see some people get their fucking comeuppance? Yes. And the television series you're referring to is L.A. Law. And he won two primetime Emmys for that, for his portrayal in L.A. Law. And he, he did play a, a portrayal yes. of a special needs yeah. individual, correct? Yes, yes. There we go. Benny. Yeah. Yes, I remember. Uh, but then, yeah, then he went on to do um, Dr. Giggles, and uh, he was in an episode of Firefly. If anybody remembers that show that should have never been canceled after one season. And I think you're right. It is a very uh, deliberate and wise choice that the Otis Hazelrig character throughout the film only wears this postal uniform because for him in his mind, that is his sense of authority. He's the postman. He says it like five times in the film to different people. So when he's in this outfit, he feels like he is somebody. He has some authority because he runs the post office. So of course he's going to be wearing this fucking outfit the entire movie. It just fits his personality. Uh, And after he sees uh, Bubba and Mary, Lee have this very innocent kiss. He drives to his friend Harless's place. Did you recognize the actor that plays Harless? Honestly, I did not. Who is this? Oh my God. He plays Joe Pesci's antagonist in My Cousin Vinny. Oh, oh my gosh. That's so specific. <laughs> yeah. Remember the other lawyer? What's a, you know, the whole, you've seen My Cousin Vinny, right? He's the, yes. he's the, he's the other lawyer. Wow. Okay. I just, I mean, I guess it says something about the performance here because you're going to be surprised because I have, oh my God, there's like five actors from this film that are just in just random fucking movies but yes he's from my cousin Vinny. so otis goes to harless's place and tells harless you know he's out there again with her and harless is like well, what do you want to do go take care of him and hazel rig otis is like no we're not going to do anything because he won't remember anyway he's a, he's an idiot you know we've told him over and over again to stay away from her and he forgets two days you know later and then he goes on this like very almost I mean, it's it's very vitriolic. He's like, you know, he's a stinkweed. And it's like one of those things that you try to ex- extinguish over and over again and it just keeps coming back and it just keeps coming back. We, we're only in three minutes into this film and it's already being developed that this Otis character has so much hatred for Bubba. And we are trying to figure out, at least I'm trying to process, like, why would you hate this very innocent childlike man so much you know was there there a history with him supposedly doing stuff to other kids no that's not what it is i really like the direction the story goes to kind of give us insight into what it might be i think it's very interesting he tells harless no the next time we do something it has to be permanent and harless is like taken aback a bit and harless is like you know what i'll rough him up a bit but that's about as far as i'm gonna go Hazel Rig is like, well, what would you do if he did something to her out there? And Harless is like, well, you know what I do? That's different because there'd be a reason. 
And with that, Hazel rig dries off in a huff. He's like, give the missus your, my, or tell the missus I said hi. But I, I just was so like, I guess I was so taken aback by how vitriolic and just how seething this Otis character is over Bubba. They are so intentional with providing details um, regarding o- Otis's true motivation. Uh, it's not something that they force feed you as the viewer. Like it's little bits and pieces here and there and you've put it together for yourself and then suddenly things feel really uncomfortable. And once they start to feel uncomfortable, you hate him that much more. Oh my God. I I genuinely, I agree. I have never hated a villain. I think in a movie more than this fucking asshole, he's just played so well, my God, but the things he does, he's so horrible. And I mean, right off the bat, like he's looking for an opportunity. You can see it in his eyes. He is intentionally seeking a reason to get Bubba out of the picture. And, you know, what happens coming up here is just it's it's a, it's an unfortunate situation, bad timing, because this whole thing that happens with them coming upon that fountain, which she proclaims is beautiful, but I assure you that fountain is not beautiful. That is a, that is a tacky fountain with those garden gnomes. Oh, my God. Oh, the gnomes. Yes. Bubba and Mary Lee are walking home and they they have this song that they sing together. Uh, it's very cute, but yeah, she sees this backyard and there's this fountain and it, to me, Roger, it looks like a bird bath, but whatever. She's a nine year old girl. It's some Texas podunk town. A bird bath is probably a fancy fountain for her, but yeah, she wants to go in the backyard and, and take a closer look at this fountain. And Bubba's like, no, I'm not going. I don't want to get in trouble. So she's like, oh, fine. I'll go by myself. So she goes in the backyard and starts admiring the fountain and admiring these gnomes and pretending she's smoking a pipe with them. When all of a sudden, the homeowner's dog comes out, growling and attacking, and it attacks her. Uh, she screams for Bubba, and he jumps to the re- he jumps in the backyard. But I like the camera work here because all you hear are this child's like horrifically brutal screams as the camera just keeps focusing in on different faces of these gnomes. It's very effective. Like we're not seeing anything, we're hearing this the blood curling screams and seeing these fucking gnome faces. Very effective. This movie really doesn't show much of anything at all but the way that they orchestrate these sequences it's so satisfying for the most part most of them are still have managed to have such a payoff uh in the execution in general that i i don't care like i really don't care like you're right this sequence the whole they, they let like the moment with her making eye contact with the dog linger like you know she's just standing there and she's like but bubba bubba and I adore that Bubba, like, yet again, is trying to make the good choices. He he says, like, oh, I can't go in there. Like, I really can't go in there. And she's like, well, I'm going to go. And he's like, you shouldn't do it. Like, he is the voice of reason in this situation. And when she's in danger, he goes from, like, sweet and simple to plowing through that goddamn fence and running to save her. And they just do such a good job of making this guy feel like a hero. Like, he really is concerned for this girl and it is so endearing and um yeah it, oh what happens coming up here after this though man i mean literally angry like i feel the anger in me still pulsing inside of me <laughs> yeah yeah well you know we cut to poor Marilee's mother cooking dinner and she gets uh she hears the pounding on the door and she's like all right i'm coming and she opens the door and there is bubba standing on the porch holding what appears to be a dead Marilee, covered in blood and he was like, Bubba didn't do it. And you get this like zoom in of her scream where she's like, ah, and the camera kind of pushes in on her. Reminded me so much of the Casey Becker's mom scream in 
scream. The same type of whole setup and everything, and the same push in and everything, same facial grabbing the cheeks and screaming out. So the first thing I thought of, yeah, you can even see the broad's fillings in her teeth, like they go in so t- tight on this scream. But I love it, and it it feels a pinch like big, a pinch over the top, but it, it's. Um, I, it seems intentional, like it's dramatic. And I do feel like we have seen so many moments come after this that kind of try to recreate the same dramatic beat where you have like a parental figure or whomever like, <gasps> and they have this big dramatic scream. We, we have seen this before in multiple films because there's another movie that does the exact same. Oh, Cherry Falls does like the same kind of like, ah, like, you know, like, and it does. Uh, yeah, I, I like this moment here. And it is, you don't see really the brutality overall, but you do see like blood running down the girl's leg and everything. So, you know, something happened, but he's fucking selling this panic. I mean, God, is he selling it? You know, it's, you think she died. Yeah, he sells this. Ne- the next five minutes of the film, he he is selling and he's giving it his all. But I do find it interesting that the first thing he says to the mother is Bubba didn't do it. And it really plays into what we find out in the next scene with what his mother, Mrs. Ritter, says, because it's obviously it's obvious that Bubba, by saying that, is is used to be people accusing him of doing things and, and thinking everything is his fault because it's the very first thing he says to her. Bubba didn't do it. And when you think of it from that perspective, it makes it just more heartbreaking. But yeah, we zoom in on the screen and then we cut to the post office where Harless rushes in to tell Otis that Bubba finally did it. And Otis is like, what? What are you talking about? He's like, he killed the Williams girl. And, you know, should the sheriff's organize in a group? But Otis is like, no, no, no. We're going to take care of this ourselves. So he grabs his gun and they rush out and get into this truck and speed through town in the pickup truck and are able to stop and pick up two other acquaintances of theirs. One is Skeeter, who is like the local mechanic. And then the other one is Philby who runs like a hog farm and they get some scent dogs to bring along. So right away we are like, okay, these guys are, are trying to, I'm sorry. So right away we are like, okay, so these guys are going to really uh, dish out some vigilante justice apparently. Yeah, you know, we're like, oh, it's not going to go there. But yes, it does, because they drive to Bubba's place and we keep intercutting between them speeding down the dirt road to Bubba's house and Bubba running through the woods crying and just falling and crying. And he's hearing the dogs bark as they're trying to track him. And he gets home, gets to his house and screams for his mother. And his mother comes out and it is the ever so lovely Jocelyn Brando is the actress who is Marlon Brando's older sister and who gays will know from Mommy Dearest. She plays Barbara in Mommy Dearest. Remember when Joan Crawford starts choking uh, Christina? When Christina's like, and I am not one of your fans. Oh my God. Like, yes, you're right. There's so many like specific, like <laughs> there's such specific actors, but yeah, that she, pl- she plays the reporter. Remember Jones? Like you deliberately embarrassed me in front of a reporter, a reporter. That is her. Well, look at her. Oh my God. Well, I mean, let me tell you another fucking phenomenal performance i'm going to say this this woman i mean she is the she is the complete antithesis of of otis she's rough around the edges but she loves that fucking son so fucking much and you feel it in every pore of her body you know she loves him and what she goes through what this poor fucking woman goes through th- over the course of this movie but she stands firm and she is she is out for vengeance this woman i love this character so much I love how she cares about her her child. Like it is clear that that she 
is well aware that he is bullied and mistreated, and she knows very well that her child is not causing the problems that they are claiming. And she carries that with her through the whole movie. And she's really like kind of a ray of light at times in the film. Like you really like you want to see her. You want to see the comeuppance for him, but you want to see it for her too. She even makes the comment. She's like, every time something goes wrong in this town, they blame you. Uh, and then she's like, you know what? Mommy's going to protect you. Mama's going to protect you. We're going to play the hiding game because they hear the they hear the uh, the dogs getting closer and, and poor Bubba's just freaking out. So she's like, we're going to play the hiding game and whatever that is. My only question here is why didn't she just take him in the house? Like the guys aren't going to just storm in the house. She could have hit him in the house. He would have been fine. Instead, they do something a little weird in my opinion. Like if it was my child, I would have taken the child and hit him in a closet inside the house. But okay. The vigilantes get to the house. Hazel Rigg is screaming for Bubba to come out, but instead the mama does. And right away, she is not playing with these guys. That's what I love about Mama Ritter is she does not back down from these fuckers at all. She's like, get your asses off my property. And he's like, you're obstructing justice. Where is he? And she's like, you ain't the law. You don't have any. What does she tell him? You don't have any authority here. The only authority you have is licking stamps. Oh, God. I love how she just will not back down at all. And he does not like this one. <laughs> like, it is clear that this, this fucking mailman does not like Mrs. Ritter one bit. And she can't fucking stand him. Oh, I know. She's like, get your asses off my property. He's like, you'll be sorry. So they continue to search the property and the dogs are just going nuts through this field. They they stop in front of the scarecrow that's out in the middle of this desolate field and the dogs are just going nuts. And the guys are like, I don't know why he's barking at a fucking scarecrow until Otis decides to get a closer look at this scarecrow. And he goes and gets right in front of it and stares into it. And probably I would say one of the most iconic shots from the film one that I remember as a kid is the shot that we see of directly at looking at the scarecrow's face, but in the eye holes, you see Bubba's eyes just terrified, like looking out from the scarecrow's eye holes. And the second that Otis recognizes that it's Bubba, we're like, Oh shit. And he starts to whimper and they, the guys back away and, and he's whimpering and crying. And then he just, in a very childlike way, says, Bubba didn't do it before Otis and these fuckers shoot this man. Like they, they literally murder this man in broad daylight, no authority to do so. And they riddle him with bullet holes. And it is like the taught set of the only gore we get because we do get the, the shot of his dead body just yeah bullet holes everywhere dripping blood and i am like are you fucking serious who do these men think they are man i mean if you want a good setup for a revenge film like this is it like this is it like i want to see each one of these fuckers get their just desserts and one thing I really like about this is through this whole process of introducing these extra, you know, these these secondary characters, um, like Mr. Philly, the, the way that you see them coming through the town and, you know, you see them pulling up in the pickup truck and picking them all up and 
it's executed in a way where you see every character in an environment that's identified with them. Mr. Philly has the the mill, and then uh, Skeeter is a mechanic, so he has the body shop. So, like, you pass all the locations. You see, like, key things that are going to play factors in the comeuppance that is inevitably going to come upon them. Down to uh, Mr. Philly, like, throwing one of his heart pills. Like, you know, he's got a pill that he takes for his chest pains, and he, like, he throws one back real quick when he, like, grabs his chest trying to keep up. I think that these little delicate details that they place throughout this whole progression of the sequence are so masterfully played. It is clear that a lot of thought went to the execution of this whole film, but especially this buildup. Not only are they giving you a really great motivator for a bunch of people to get what's coming to them, but they're giving you breadcrumbs along the way. If you follow along, if you're paying attention... A lot of these things are going to come back into play. I love how this whole sequence unfolds up until this truly brutal and horrifying execution sequence. And then the fact, like, on top of that, that then they, well, Otis specifically takes a pitchfork and places it in Bubba's dead hand to make it seem as though they thought he was going to attack them, harm them. I mean... As if the murder wasn't bad enough, the fact that they they lie about it? Oh my god, I am disgusted. I can't wait for them to die. Yeah, because af- right after they kill him, like literally right after they shoot him, Harless gets um, a radio call from his from his truck and he goes to answer it. And it's someone that's asking, hey, Harless, where are you at? Harless is like, yeah, we're out at the Ritter property. And the guy on the radio says, why are you there? The sheriff called off that group like a, a half hour ago. And Harless is like, what? What are you talking about? He's like, yeah, uh, the girl's fine. Marilyn, she's she's fine. She's alive. She was attacked by a dog. And you know what's funny is that Bubba actually saved her life. And the guys are like, oh, shit. And yes, that is when that fucking despicable man, Otis, goes to the back of the truck, gets a pitchfork and puts it in poor Bubba's hand to make it look like, just like you said, that Bubba attacked him. And you want to know the worst part of it, Roger? What? What? It actually works. This courtroom sequence fills me with so much rage, Troy. First of all, I really wanted this goddamn defense attorney <laughs> to, to get to get killed as well. This fucker, oh my God, what a crock of shit he's spewing. And that poor guy, Sam, who is really just trying to do the Lord's work and see some justice come down on murderers. Uh, I mean, God damn, oh my Lord. The way this is handled is just, it makes you hate a lot of people in this town. It's going to infuriate you because, yes, this fucking defense lawyer is a horrible person. Uh, throwing pitchforks on the floor, screaming that the, the district attorney is a liar and, and, and is harassing his clients. The judge, buying the defense's story hook, line, and sinker, even asks Otis, who's up on the stand, now, Otis, did you give, did you give that man proper warning before you open fire? And Otis is like, oh, yes, we gave him multiple warnings. We even shot some warning shots into the air. We just had to defend ourselves. The way he says it, he's so, like, innocent and like, oh, oh, but we had to defend ourselves. Like, go fuck yourself, Otis. You are blatantly lying, and you are making it seem like you're the victim. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But but ultimately it works because the judge is like I don't see enough evidence for or probable cause to 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 
to keep you guys. So it's my ruling that all of these men be released at once. How? How? But you know what? I'm not going to question anything when it comes to the law anymore because we've seen we've seen stuff like this really happen. Oh yeah. So we can sit there and be pissed off about it, but it's happened multiple times. It's ha- I mean, but the mother, of course, she's in there and she starts screaming, Miss Ritter, and of course she has to have the last. She's like. They killed my baby. And then she does scream it. Then there are justices that are going to happen to you beyond the law. And boy, is she right. But then when you can't hate Otis anymore, or you think you can't hate Otis anymore, this post courtroom scene uh, uh, makes you want to punch him in the fucking face because they're leaving the court all happy because they, they got acquitted. And the uh, district attorney comes out and he's like, hey, Otis, Hazelrig, I just want you to know that if I come across any evidence, because I know you executed that man. And if I come across one piece of evidence, all of you are going to be on death row. And what's Otis do? He checks his watch. And the, the uh, district attorney is like, oh, am I keeping you from something, Mr. Hazelrig? And Otis is like, well, it's just that on Tuesday nights, Mrs. Krug or whatever her name is at my boarding house makes fried chicken. And they just start busting up laughing like it's the the funniest thing they've ever heard in their life. Oh, my God. This cocky smile, this this smug smirk he has across his face when he when he says it um, really like this, like just shit eating grin. Oh, my God. I want to smack it the fuck off of his face. And. I'll say the character of Sam, I really like his character. He is he's obviously a character with just genuinely good intentions and and wants to see justice served. Um I, I wish he was a bit more present in the film because I almost feel he's a, a pinch underutilized because he's very well very well played. He's very well acted. He's another character that is quite likable, but he kind of comes and he goes throughout the course of the film. Yeah, you know, they they start to set him up to be a a bigger part of the story than he really ends up being. And I really would have liked to seen at least some resolution with his character, but I get it. I get why it didn't happen. You know, there's a specific story to tell with the character of Otis, who is really the, the focal point of the film. And once you get that, once that comes into full swing, there's really not a lot of room for anything else. But after the courtroom scene and the post courtroom scene, we do cut to the guys, the guys at the local pub getting drunk, just laughing. They think it's hilarious that they got off for, for poor Bubba's death. And then we, we get this cool shot of the camera kind of backing out of the pub and then going onto this isolated small town street. And you just see the wind start to pick up really, really heavily. And it kind of like, camera then kind of like floats through town into the window of Lee's house where she's sleeping. And then we got into the hallway and her mom is concerned about what to tell Lee about Bubba. She, uh, she tells her husband, you know, I had no idea that she was so attached to that man. I mean, she's asking about him. She's going to look for him. What am I going to tell her? And the husband's like, don't tell her anything. Just let it lie. And at the same moment, Lee wakes up climbs out her bedroom window and runs over to Bubba's house, the Ritter's house, where she just happens to like let herself in. The middle of the night, this child just opens the door and goes into Bubba's house. I think it's pretty obvious that at least Mrs. Ritter is aware 
of the fact that Mary Lee and um, and Bubba are very close because there is this moment where she discovers her in the house after she, you know, flounces around a little bit in that flowing nightgown, which makes for some very dramatic shots of her running around in the darkness, by the way, that nightgown. I like it. Yeah. But so, you know, she, you have this moment where Mrs. Ritter finds her upstairs and she immediately goes to like tending to her. You know, I feel like there's almost something here that implies that this is a common friendship that has formed at this point. Uh, that that they're familiar with it. At least Mrs. Ritter is familiar with it. And I think, you know, her instinct, Mrs. Ritter's instinct to immediately tend to the, the girl and comfort her and speak lovingly to her shows that there is, you know, an appreciation for her being there, even though she did just walk into her house. Well, I can say that I really like this interaction between Mrs. Ritter and Marilee. You know, Marilee is so insistent on seeing Bubba and Mrs. Ritter's like, oh my God, you child, you don't know, do you? And Marilee's like, no, no, what? And she's like, Bubba's never coming back again. She's like, what do you mean? Where'd he go? And she's like, well, he went to where they can't hurt him anymore. And Marilee's like, no, no, you're wrong. Bubba's not gone. I know where he's at. He's just playing the hiding game and I'll show you. So she takes off bolting out of the house and runs out to the field and Mrs. Ritter follows her and she just happens to go to the exact spot where Bubba was shot. Uh, the pole that he was on, which is kind of eerie because she would not, she doesn't know that Bubba was killed, right? She has no idea that he was shot as a scarecrow, but, but for her to go to the specific spot that it happened, you can even tell that Mrs. Ritter is like, oh, shit. And Marilee's down on the, the ground, you know, singing and, and playing with the flowers. And see, Mrs. Ritter, he's just playing the hiding game. And you hear the crows and the wind pick up and Mrs. Ritter's just like, okay, you, you kind of see the, the clock spinning in her head. Like she's starting to maybe realize that possibly Bubba's not necessarily gone. Yeah, no, I, I really uh, appreciate that when they do have any form of uh, implying that there may be some some supernatural element or fantastical element here, it's very understated. It's like you said earlier, the wind or this weird little moment where she's just drawn immediately to the um, the pole, the scarecrow pole where where he was killed. You know, you're right. She'd have no idea. How would she know that? But it's so subtle overall that it's not in any way heavy handed. You're, you're never led to think, oh, this is going to be like a, a like, a, I don't want to say a ghost movie almost, but like, you know, there's going to be some kind of a spiritual presence. No, you're 100% right. The film is actually very careful about revealing what it really is, right? I mean, at the end of the day, this is a supernatural revenge film. But upon first viewing, it's very careful not to let the viewer know that right away. There are moments in the film where you're like, oh shit, is someone actually killing these men? Is is, is it an actual person? And we start to think, could it be Mrs. Ritter? Could it be Sam? Could it, Who could it be? Uh, the film is very careful to reveal that it actually is a supernatural element until the very final frame of the film. Right. And I think that's a very smart thing for it to do because it keeps us as the audience guessing and, and on our toes to try to put everything that we're seeing together. And just the, the minute you think there is something that could be supernatural, the very next scene, it, it points to, Oh, well maybe it's actually someone, someone doing it. But I do like, I, I do like this whole scene with Marilee and, uh, Mrs. Ritter, I think it's some great character building. We really get to feel for for Mrs. Ritter's 
pain, but also her motherly instinct to mother this child. And again, I personally think, you know, we've talked about annoying kids in horror films. We've seen many of them. I actually think that this Mary Lee character is quite a likable, realistic character. And like I said, I said at the beginning of that episode that the, the, the actress is quite strong in the role. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, she's played like a real child. I mean, the, the choices she makes, the mistakes she makes, the fact that she doesn't completely even understand the idea that Bubba being deceased could possibly mean that, you know, he would also not be around. She's unfazed by the fact that he's still apparently, in her words, visiting her at a certain point. Um, And it doesn't seem to frighten her or throw her off or disturb her. If anything, when she learns about what's happened, she's on Team Bubba, clearly. And I love that about her. And she makes some bold choices. Being a child, she still manages to make some choices that I think are rather advanced and... Uh, likable, and you you do want to see her end up safe at the end of this movie. You know, going into this not knowing anything, I got to a certain point where I was like, "Oh my goodness, is this you know with with the way things are progressing, is is this girl going to possibly die at the hands of Otis? Is that going to be something that happens? If it does, I will be very upset because this girl is hitting all the notes, hitting all the beats that I would want to see from a young child performance." She's really giving a, a great performance being so young. It's it's very nuanced, um, and, and and she is very strong-willed. You said that before, and that translates really well for this character. Well, we cut to Otis the next day, delivering the mail, and there's this like, little moment with him. It's like, okay, how many little moments do we need to, to show that Otis is like a sleazeball because he's delivering the mail, and wh- whoever he's giving the mail to, they have a, a, a nudie magazine. And before he puts it into the mailbox, he has to, of course, open it up, look at the centerfold, flip through the pages like, you know, and you're like, oh, my God, Otis, really? And then it cuts to Harless's property where his wife is excited. She just checked the mail and they got an invitation to the church Halloween party for Saturday. So she goes to ask Harless if he wants to go. And he's like, oh, I don't care. He's working on his tractor or whatever it is. She's like, hey, did you start planting already? He's like, why are you asking a silly question? You know I've never planted this early. And she's like, well, that's weird. If you haven't started planting this early, why would you put up a scarecrow? And then we look out to the field and we see the scarecrow out there in the field on the pole. And it very much is the same scarecrow that, or the same outfit that Bubba was wearing when they murdered him. The, the reveal shot here, Troy, of that, of that scarecrow in the distance against that field it's, I mean, creepy. The score here, too. We haven't even talked about the score yet, Troy. Fucking creepy. It's an ominous score, and it's used very well to build upon these sequences as they unfold. I do have a note about the score. It's a quite a effective score. It is creepy. It's used minimalistically, though, which I like. It's not like you're not banged over the head with the score. The score is very subtle most of the time. But when it does come into play, you're right, it, it definitely hits the right note to add the the tension and atmosphere to the scene. And yes, this reveal with the scarecrow in the, in the field is just like, oof, it is creepy. But again, we are not like, it's not like, oh, look at it, it's the scarecrow, It's this is a ghost story. No, because as we find out, it could have been put there by somebody, right? That is exactly what Otis says when they go to confront him, because of course, Harless rushes to town and he goes into the, the the local diner to confront Philby and Skeeter. And he's like, what are you guys? What the, what the fuck you guys think you're doing? He doesn't say fuck, but 
Uh, and they're like, what are you talking about? He's like, that scarecrow, why'd you put it in my field? And they swear to him that they did not do it. So then they go to Otis's boarding house where he lives. He lives in a boarding house, which is an odd choice, but where would the fuck would you ever expect this man to live? Like really? So they go to his boarding house and they, they go up to his room and they tell him about the scarecrow. And he's like, come on guys, think, who do you think put it there? And it's Harless who's like, oh, Sam, the district attorney. They're like, well, what are we going to do about it? And Otis says, we're not going to do anything about it. You guys don't ever come here again. You you guys look guilty as hell. So just go home and don't ever come back here and just forget about it. And so the guys leave. That evening, Harless gets home and he goes out to the field to look at the scarecrow and it's gone. So he, he kicks the pole down and heads back to the house. But as he's going into the house, he hears his wood chipper uh, turn on from the garage. So he goes out to the garage and shuts it off. You know, brush and hay fall from the rafters above him. We hear rustling. So he climbs up to see who's up there. And he thinks it's Sam. He's like, come on, Sam. I don't have time for this. I got to get, I got to get inside. And there's like this wooden crate. Now, Roger, I'm really, conf- I, I'm sort of confused about what happens here. Because nothing jumps out at him. I think what happens is the uh, wood chipper or the hay grinder thing starts up again below him and it it startles him. So he falls backwards off the beam. Yeah, it's a little hard to tell. I think you're right. I think it's a little bit hard to identify that. That's one note that I acknowledge as well. But the overall execution of the sequence is so good and so dark and shadowed and ominous that I really don't mind. Like I love the shots like of him looking up as the straws falling down on him from above. Like there's some really great cinematography here and just the buildup, like the shot that I mentioned earlier of him walking up in the middle of the dirt field, just looking at this empty pole. Like it's really a, just a really excellent frame, like a beautifully framed shot. Like it's really well done. The whole sequence is well done. And I, I appreciated that this character in my mind, I thought I knew like what was going to happen, who was going to go first. And I like that this character, who is prominently kind of introduced almost as Otis's right-hand man, is the first to go here. Because I, I really was anticipating that he would be like maybe like the second last to go. It just seemed like if you were going to kind of try to call what was going to happen for a paint-by-the-numbers horror movie, he seemed like someone that would stick around a bit longer. So I thought it was kind of a bold choice to kill this guy off. And I, I really do like the sequence. I will say I was initially anticipating that it would go a little bit bigger than where it goes, but I get that it's a made-for-TV movie. There's no way they're going to show some big, massive, like, blood spray or something with this, you know, what inevitably happens here. I wish there was, like, an, you know, like a director's cut or something that would have that moment, but it still works for what it is, in my opinion. Yeah, no, it's quite effective. He's hanging on, he he falls off of the, the rafter and he's hanging on the light fixture for a, a moment. And we hear just the, the loud grinding of the, the wood chipper below him and he's screaming bloody murder. And then we see that the light fixture breaks from the ceiling and he falls down and then we just hear it. We hear like the metal crunching as he falls in and we hear his screams and that's it. And Eddie, you're right. I like the choice that they kill him off first because of the of the three friends, we're not counting Otis. Of the three of them, the the, the acquaintances or the accomplices, we'll call them. He uh, he actually is the probably the most level-headed and stable one. Uh, he's kind of on the same page with Otis. They kind of have the same personalities. 
They're both kind of in charge. So when he goes first, Otis is really left with the two misfits because let's be honest, uh, Skeeter and uh, the other guy, Philby, are misfits. They're kind of goofy. And so Otis is left to contend with the situation with these two, whereas if he had his real friend that was on the same level as he is, he could probably could have uh, maneuvered this whole situation a little bit differently. But he is left caring for these two, like I said, blabbering misfits, as we find out. I do like the, the the scene hard cuts to Jelly being splattered on Otis's plate. Yeah, if you're not going to show the gore, at least give me a creative transition, and they do manage to do that. And I do even love the subtle little detail of Otis being like, can I have some more? Can I have some more? Like, he takes like a third helping of this jelly, like, of this pure, of this few puree. Yeah, it's Mrs. Bunch who runs this boarding house. And Roger, do you know who Mrs. Bunch is? Is it Shelly Winters? Oh my God, you didn't recognize her? <laughs> no, who is it? Who is it? No, it's not Shelly Winters. Tell him, Large Marge sent you. That was Large fucking Marge? No, it's Large fucking Marge. Yes, it was. Get the fuck out of my face with that. What a, what a treat. I did not know that was Large Marge. What a, a versatile actress she is. Go back and watch that scene and look at her and you're going, okay, yes, it is. It's Alice Nunn is the actress's name. It is Large Marge from Pee Wee's Big Adventure. But she is a sweet boarding house mother in this film, and she's just wanting to feed Otis. You know, she's giving him pancakes, bacon, uh, and the, these housemates. I guess there's just a group of elderly men that live in this house. I don't know what this is, but whatever. They're telling him, "Oh, did you hear the commotion this morning? There was lots of ambulances, and then the police came by at five oh four, and then the DA at five oh nine. Because I know, because I take my walk at that time. The one guy across the table tells him, and then." The, He's like, hey, Otis, wasn't Harless here last night? And Otis is like, yeah. He's like, oh, man, isn't that something? You can be here one minute and gone the next. Harless got himself caught up in his wood chipper last night. The look on Otis's face when he hears this. And also, I love the small detail of that senior citizen man uh, acknowledging the exact time that every cop car drove by because you know that you know that is an old people trait. Like, I love the elderly, but you know, like, they're, you know, when, when you get to the point you're living in a goddamn boarding house, which is another trait about Otis that I want to acknowledge. When you, like, because we didn't really talk about this, but there was a scene a little bit earlier where you saw saw the inside of Otis's like tiny little boarding house room. And again, it makes him look very like meek and, uh, you know, I don't want to say defeated, but like, you know, here he is in this tiny little room. He thinks so highly of himself, but he's really kind of living like the most simplistic, like final stages of his life kind of, you know, uh, nursing home almost, if you will. Like, it feels like it's the step before going into a nursing home. That's really what this place feels like. And you've got these men, some of which are significantly older than him, um, or just kind of living in this place, babbling and everything. And then you've got him inside of his room. You see all of his kind of military paraphernalia. He's got all, he's proudly got all of his images of himself, like, you know, in his general garb. Like, of course he's former military. There's flags everywhere. It's clear that he has quite the background in it. And so when you get this tiny visual of him in the, in, in that room, 
you get even more of an idea of this is a man who I assume at one point thought very highly of himself and feels like he has fallen, but he's really trying to compensate. Like, oh boy, does he try to compensate. Even when the men come to his room, he's like, don't ever come here again. Like, it's, I, it's almost like I feel like you get the, the sense that he's embarrassed of where he's at in his life. And so he tries to compensate with his title of being a mailman, like as though it's something of a form of power in this town. So again, just excellent storytelling and like combination with that and the the cinematography, you're getting a really rich story told over the course of this film. And these characters are so detailed. So I I really love that little touch. I wanted to go back and acknowledge that. I love the juxtaposition of the character because he seems like he's so in charge. He thinks like he is a, he thinks he has power, but then we find out he's living in this boarding house and he's living in a single room in a boarding house. Uh, And it's just like, an interesting layer to the character. And we as the audience realize, okay, maybe this dude isn't as powerful or as in charge as he likes to think he is. He does drive out to Harless's property and sees the ambulance loading the body into the back of it. And then he sees Harless's wife being led into a car crying by the DA, Sam, who turns around and glares at him. At the post office that night, Skeeter and Philby are there and they're like, you can hear the, the cameras kind of zooming in on the post office. You hear the conversation they're having and they're talking about they basically killed an innocent man and that he, Bubba, was just trying to help the little girl. And you hear Otis say, well, he probably would have done something to her sooner or, or later. And then they get on the subject of uh, Harless's death and Philby's like, how could it have been an accident? Otis is like, well, it was the, the, the medical examiner says it was, and that was good enough for me. And then Philby asks a very good question. He's like, well, who shut the machine off then? And Otis is like, well, what are you talking about? And Philby says, well, you said that the machine was off when they found his body. Someone had to have shut it off. And Otis like, no, it ran out of gas. It could have ran out of gas. And Philby's like, do you know that for sure? So then the group goes to the garage where, Harless died. They go to the machine and they take a handle of a shovel, unscrew the gas cap and stick it down in there to see if it has gas. in. And when they pull it out, they realize that the tank was full. So someone had to have shut it off. And Skeeter's like, well, who could have shut it off? And Otis's response is, it's the same person that turned it on. Dun, dun, dun. These men are bold right off the bat i mean these fuckers are just walking onto the scenes of crimes getting their hands all over things i mean i don't know if fingerprints i mean i'm assuming with 1981 troy you know these things were fingerprints at all of value for forensics at this point yes right yeah they would have been yeah 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 so they're just you know just handling them willy-nilly like no big deal and they continue to do this. Like there are multiple times that these individuals find themselves, I don't know, d- digging up bodies. We're always digging up bodies here on Dark Knight of the Podcast, and this movie is no different. And so they're yeah, they're really bold to go back to this uh, the scene of the of the murder. Um, but I do like this moment where they like choose to dip the the stick into the the fuel tank to prove that it is in fact full. Because again, it's just this little like ominous detail, like oh, so in fact this thing did not run out of gas. So. It's a hole in Otis's story. He really tries to always maintain control over everything, but things start to go off the rails pretty fast. I mean, if you look at the time frame of the movie, it's not like a large period of time has passed. It's not like one year later. It's like literally a matter of, I'd say, maybe a couple weeks that this happens over that 
you know, these events start to transpire. So it's it's moving pretty quickly. They start to realize pretty fast that there is a force out to get them. I do like that. I like the pacing. Once you start to realize that these individuals, these fuckers are being killed off, they're pretty aware of it. And they're scared for their lives. I, I like seeing them cower before they die. As they should be. They should be scared for their lives. And you know, it's hard to feel sorry for them, any of them, because of what they did. So the next morning, Otis delivers some packages. Delivering his packages, he pulls up to Mrs. Ritter's house. And as he gets out, he sees Merrily come out of the house. And she stares at him with a very, very hateful glare before she runs off. And then he goes, he has the nerve. This man has the nerve to go knock on Mrs. Ritter's door. And she answers and she's like, get, get your ass off my property. And he's like, no, I have a package for you. And she's like, you have some nerve, put it in the mailbox. He's like, I can't, you got to sign for it. So she signs for it and he tries to shut the door. And as she's shutting the door, he sticks his foot in it. And he proceeds to tell her my friend died a few nights ago. She's like, yeah, I heard. And Otis says, they think it was an accident, but I don't. And she responds, like she said in the courtroom, there are other justices in this world. What you sow, so shall you reap. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for a life. I like that little back and forth between them. And so he makes an insinuation that she had something to do with Harlow. She says, don't you flatter yourself. He's like, you better listen to me. It's even now. And she says, it's not even as long as you're still walking. And she says, you think you're fooling people? I see how you look at that child. And you can tell right away, he like backs away. And she says, you may have him fooled, but you don't have me fooled. I know exactly what you are. You stay away from her, Hazel Rig. And he gets in his little mail truck and he, he skedaddles out of there. But I love this moment because it reveals something that has been the missing puzzle piece for me for why Hazel Rig hates Bubba so much. Right? The fact that they managed to elevate our hatred for this character is truly impressive. Like kudos on the writers of this sequence, because you're right. It is the missing piece. Like you don't exactly understand his motivations and they certainly haven't given you anything really to suspect this. I mean, you caught him spying on the girl through binoculars. That makes more sense now, but, oh, and she's very cold to him. Like I almost wonder if he's tried something with her before because she is very cold with him. I mean, you do eventually learn she knows something, but he becomes immediately a hundred times more detestable than he already was. And that broad is standing her ground. She's screaming after him as he's driving away. But I mean, think about that. He killed, he wanted to kill this innocent man, this pure innocent man, this childlike man. He wanted to kill this man because he was jealous of the relationship that he has with this girl, this nine-year-old girl, because he's into this nine-year-old girl. How fucking sick. Oh my God. I want him to die so badly. I want him to die such a horrible death. And unfortunately, he probably has the least horrible death of the, the bunch, but we'll save that for the time comes. Uh, we cut to Philby, who comes out of his sh shop and immediately sees the scarecrow in his field. And he runs out to it and like collapses in front of it. And we do get a better glimpse of it. And it is the exact same scarecrow. Oh, my God. The shot, Troy, of him collapsing against this hillside 
and that and that mill or the you know the silo you keep seeing that that mill he works at it so it is pivotal it comes into play but this whole location looks really really cool but when you see him like up against that dramatic backdrop as the sun is setting and all of like the the wheat it's like golden it's just so stunningly beautiful oh my gosh yeah, but he always has these dramatic reactions to everything. He is definitely the most skittish of the of the bunch because he um he goes to the Halloween party. There's a Halloween dance that evening and it looks like a happening place. All these old, you know, old small town folk are square dancing in the in the town hall. And Marilee's there with some of her friends and she initiates a game of hide and go seek. And when she's done counting, she opens her eyes to turn around to go look for her friends. And Otis is standing right in front of her and he's admiring her costume, which I don't know. I guess she's supposed to be a, her mother, right? That's what he guesses. That's what I thought it was. It looks like an old purple nightgown she's wearing. He asks her, did you show Miss Ritter your costume? She doesn't answer him. And, you know, he says, I know you're friends with Miss Ritter. I am too. And I think she's trying to play a joke on me and some of my friends. Has she told you about it? And and again, she just stares at him. He's like, you know what? If she told you, you can come here and whisper it to me and it'll be our little secret. You know, she considers it and she walks over to him and gets right in his ear. And I like this. She's like, I know what you did to Bubba and you lied about it. Did Miss Ritter tell you that? And she says, no, Bubba did. You are lying. Bubba's dead. And she says, I know. And she runs off. Mary Lee's having none of it. She's having none of it. She's glaring at Otis with a stink eye. Like, I love the glares that this child gives. Like, she does not hide her disdain for this man. And I appreciate that. And I love, like, he really underestimates her. He's like, look at how pretty you are, which is creepy now when you think about it. Complimenting her dress and everything. And she's just standing there, like, just, like, frowning, like, pissed the fuck off that she has to talk to this guy. But... You know, when he tell when he when he asks her to share the secret, like she openly chooses to share it with him. And at first you almost see it almost seems like she's like giving in to him and, and like telling him what he wants to know, but she's just making it really clear, like, I know what you did, and you're fucked because of it. And the look on his face when he realizes it, like you see the child take control in the conversation he immediately becomes i don't want to say frightened of her but he becomes intimidated by the situation because what the fuck is he going to do about it and i love how she just she's like go fuck yourself and she runs off and that cop that cop shows up and he's like you're definitely a child molester keep away from that kid (laughs) i do love that the 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 characters the only characters that stand up to hazel in the entire film are the two that you would think would not do it because they're more the most vulnerable characters in the film and that's the child and then the elderly mrs ritter you know the the guys the 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 young guys or the guys that are in the group are afraid to stand up to him it's the child and the old lady that have to do it so he goes back into the dance to have some punch you know and the lady that's serving the punch she's like oh do you want the dry punch oh i forgot you don't drink alcohol so she gives him the dry punch there's this moment where he you see him dump it out and he takes the alcoholic punch to to have a drink and um Philby comes rushing into the to the dance and goes up to him. It's like, I've seen it. So Philby, Otis, and Skeeter go out to the field, but the Scarecrow is not there. Uh, he insists it was there and that he's not crazy. And Otis suggests that they go inside so that nobody sees them. Skeeter suggests that they go to the police. And he's like, are you crazy? You want to end up in prison? And Philby's like, well, it's better than being dead. 
So we now go to Mrs. Ritter's home and she's in her rocking chair when she hears some tapping coming from the back door. So she goes into the kitchen and the door is open and it's just banging in the wind. So she shuts it and then she puts a teapot on, goes back to her rocking chair, you know, to back to her knitting when all of a sudden, and this is kind of a creepy shot too. We just see this hand come up through between the, the railings of the rocking chair and wrap around her mouth. And it's Otis. And he's aggressively, he's like, I warned you. I know it's you and you better stop it. He says, an eye and I, an eye for an eye has been completed. You got it. And he takes his hand off of her mouth and she like lets out this loud scream and he aggressively puts his hand back over her mouth. And he's like, shut up. I'm not going to hurt you. You just got to do what I say. You know, he's, aggressive with her and he takes his hand back off of her mouth and goes in front of her. He's like, you know what? Me and you, there's no reason for us to be each other's throats. And we see that she is Roger. She's dead. The the fact that this woman dies by heart attack while being like, like having her face covered by this man. Like it seems a little bit implausible. The timing couldn't be worse for this guy, but you do see her eyes like go wide. She's like, Oh shit. I'm having a heart attack, but she can't do anything because he's covering her mouth. Uh, but it happens really fast. But my God, I mean, if you didn't already have enough fuel for hating this motherfucker, like add this to the fucking list. He just killed. He just frightened that old woman to death by smothering her face from behind the the rocking chair. I mean, oh my God, my favorite character in the movie gone. I mean, he needs to fucking die. Well, that's not even the worst of it, because when he's leaving, right as he's getting out the door, the tea kettle starts to whistle. And he turns around and he's all freaked out and he like gets an idea. We see the moment the light bulb goes off in his head. He goes and shuts the takes the tea kettle off of the uh, the oven, but then turns the gas on, on all the stove burners and leaves the house. And there's this moment where we keep intercutting between the gas coming out of the stove and the fireplace. There's gas coming out of the stove and the fireplace, the gas coming out of the stove and the fireplace, the gas coming out of the stove, then the fireplace. And then in a moment, the house just fucking explodes. I mean, what a big buildup for this situation, but God, I mean, what an explosion. Holy shit. I mean, this house explodes, but I do really like this sequence. I mean, once he goes to run out of the house, he's tripping all over for being a bigger, older guy. This guy is really physical. He's rolling all over the place. And when he trips and he hears the, He's startled by the sound of the tea, the tea kettle going off, and he puts together the idea. Oh my God, this dirty motherfucker! Um, and yeah, that poor old woman is now dead, and I'm pissed about it. And she's burnt to a crisp. And it's funny that he's able to keep committing these murders and getting away with it by making it look like an accident. Because the next day, Marianne is out playing. And do you notice something? I, I noticed that the second time I watch it, she is where in this particular scene when she finds out that. Mrs. Ritter has been killed in this house fire. She's wearing the exact same outfit that Bubba was wearing at the beginning of the movie that he gets killed in those overalls in that striped shirt is the exact same outfit, which I thought was quite a sort of clever little nod to have her wearing the outfit that Bubba was in when she finds out that his mother has been killed. Cool little touch. I thought, Oh yeah. She's watching the, um, the DA who I don't know why the DA is like this, this lawyer is at every crime scene. I don't know. Uh, but he's there with the, uh, police o- or the, the fire chief. Who's like, yeah, just looks like it was an accident. It started here in the kitchen. You know, these old people, 
they don't really take care of stuff and they like to leave the gas on. So yeah, it's just an accident. And the DA Sam is like, well, if you wouldn't mind, take a look around a little bit harder. And the, and the fire chief's like, why, what, what for? And he's like, well, really just anything, any, anything you can find, you know, hinting at that. He may think that it was not an accident. There may be some evidence that, you know, proves that Otis was involved. And then we, uh, we cut to Marianne again and she's in a different outfit now singing with her doll on the side of the street and Otis is just delivering mail as usual. And now it's nighttime and Philby is at his farm when he hears his pigs going wild. So he goes to investigate. Uh, we hear some banging on the silo. So he gets a baseball bat to go check it out. And he, this man, I'm sorry, this, this man is the jumpiest man ever to exist. Like he is, you, he's just constantly nervous. Any little sound, anything, he is like freaking out. So he grabs this baseball bat, slowly goes over to the the silo and like jumps and jumps to the side of it to see who's there. And it's just a chain that's blowing in the wind. He like chuckles to himself and heads back to towards his house. When we get a really creepy shot and it happens so quickly that this would freak me out if I, if I was him too, I don't blame him, but we see like he's going towards his house, which the, the, the light inside the house is on. But as he's going up there, all of a sudden we see a figure and then the light clicks off. So someone is his house shut off his light. I, I think this is a super creepy moment because you see just enough of a figure to know that somebody's in there and just shut off the light. I mean, first off, the the victims that are targeted by the the assailant are older men. I mean, this is not in any way following the typical structure of you know attractive teens or young women. Like these are all older unattractive, sweaty men uh, who are, you know, meeting their demise at the hands of this killer. Anyone else who's dying is dying at their hands, to be honest. Um, but then there's also the fact that, you know, the killer is is a force in this film, is a presence, but you really don't see the killer. You never see the killer actually execute somebody until the final final sequence, I guess you could say, but even still, he's like planted there which we'll elaborate on when we get to it. The, the killer in this is is kind of a mystery, and I do like that. It does make for these sequences to really be kind of unrelenting. You don't know what to expect. You never see him coming. The fact that you do get this glimpse of the figure in the doorway, you're right. It's so great because it's just a hint of a shadow. You barely see it. But there's definitely a, a tall figure in the doorway, and it's just enough to kind of send chills down your spine. And And I really enjoyed the scene that follows here. Um, I may be my favorite death sequence in the movie, just because it may not be gory, but it is sure is a cruel death. I mean, the way this guy dies is has to be horrifying. I mean, he's got heart problems. I'm sure he's having a fucking heart attack while this is happening because it is absolutely terrifying when you think of what goes on uh, through these final moments here. It's it's really a well-executed sequence. Yeah, so he when he sees this figure turn the light off, he runs into his car to try to get out, get out of there. He makes a good decision. He's like, I'm getting the fuck out of here. His car won't start, though. So he gets out and tries to open the hood to see if he can fix it. And all of a sudden he turns around and we, we hear, and it's like the first time we actually get blatantly clue that somebody else is there because we hear these heavy footsteps coming towards him in the, in the brush. And he just starts freaking out and he takes off running 
and he gets into the silo to hide uh, and shuts the door and we hear the footsteps outside and you know all of a sudden they go quiet so he tries to open the silo door to get out but it won't open and instead the conveyor belt starts up and we see that the corn all the all the shucked corn starts going up the conveyor belt to be dumped in the silo and you know this goes on for a moment but yeah this the corn starts to fill the silo and he can't get out and he is like freaking out and the corn is just piling it's down there's all these several shots of the camera just looking up as the corn is just shooting down into the silo and, and filling it up rapidly and he's trying to scream there's a shot where he's almost covered and he's like spitting corn out of his mouth. It's coming out, coming, coming down so fast. And he, he's literally buried alive by corn. And you know, the final shot we get of is he's holding this flashlight and we just see his arm sticking out of the corn, holding the flashlight. I mean, it's agonizing. This death would have to have been horrible. And it's interesting that it's, you know, done for this particular character because I think it is the cruelest death. It definitely is the the most prolonged drug out one. Well, and I really appreciate that this is a film that, like, when these men are meeting their demise, like you hear a grown man scream. Like you are hearing these men scream bloody hell, scream for their lives. Um, and so often you you don't hear that in a horror movie. So you know, again, where it lacks in gore, it sure makes up for just genuine. A fear factor because yeah this seems like a way that people have probably died before and it's probably horrifying and this man knows what's coming and it happens so quickly but he still like has a moment to realize holy fuck i'm about to die i mean as as you see his hand go limp and the the flashlight drop out of it it's such a great final beat for the sequence and um uh, yeah, I'll say all of the deaths in this movie to be honest again for being relatively blood free it's just it goes to show you that you don't necessarily need a shit ton of gore to make a scary sequence. No, you just need suspense. You just need to know how to build tension and suspense and build up to the, to the scene. And you know, this director, I don't think he's done much more outside of this, but it's a shame because he's very skilled in that regard because there are some very, like I said, and like you said, well, well executed scenes that have wonderful buildup. And this is definitely one of them. So now poor Philby is dead and he goes to Skeeter station the next day and Skeeter is like, Hey, I, I didn't hear you come in. What's up? Is something wrong? And all Otis says is Philby and Skeeter just starts freaking the fuck out. This dude is again, another skittish one that's on edge constantly because he literally has a nervous breakdown in the next several moments of this film. Otis is like, it's Bubba and Skeeter, Skeeter's like, no, it can't be. We killed him. He's buried. And he's just fucking freaking out. And Otis is like, you know what? I'll make you a deal. Give me a chance to prove it. Just stay with me. So they pull a phantom of the mall where they literally go to the cemetery to dig up poor Bubba's coffin. You know, Sometimes I, I I question, you know, how these cemeteries are run, that there are no people patrolling at all for a long enough period of time that two grown fucking men can bust in there and just dig up a body and hang around for a while. I mean, like, they both dig up the body and then inevitably they, they 
rebury the body, or one of them reburies the body. Uh, they're there for a while doing this nonsense. It's got to take at least a multitude of hours, but okay. Um, I really like Skeeter's breakdown. He is incredible. He He's phenomenal. He's phenomenal. And one thing I like is that with the male characters, like when they realize that their lives are in danger, they let them go there like emotionally. They let them panic. They let them show fear. They let them have breakdowns as we're seeing in Skeeter. I mean, Skeeter's reaction almost goes to a scale of like a, a Barbara from a Night of Li- the Living Dead kind of breakdown for a moment here where Otis has to like pin him to the ground, but that's very real to me. Like people do not handle these situations well, and Skeeter does not strike me as the strongest minded of fellows. I mean, he seems pretty weak minded. And just when he realizes that his life is in danger, I mean, he cannot handle it. He cannot process it. Otis has to like convince him to come help him with this nonsense. But overall, like Skeeter's like, I want to get the fuck out of here. I want to go to fucking Arkansas and go hide out in the hills. Like I get it. I get why he'd want to make a run for it. Yeah, but they do. They dig up the coffin and Otis has Skeeter open the coffin. And so there's this moment of tension where they open the coffin and it's like, is is his body going to be in there or is it not? They open the coffin and Skeeter just fucking starts again screaming. Oh, my God, it's him. It's him. He takes off running and Otis has to chase him down. And like you said, tackle him to the ground. And Skeeter is just like he's having a Barbara times 12 type breakdown. He is just freaking out and otis is like it's okay i know who it is it's the girl so okay so now otis has accused pretty much everybody in town of killing being the killer he's accused the sam the prosecutor he's accused mrs ritter now he's thinking it's a nine-year-old girl that's doing it anybody's fault but his own he's gonna pin it on anybody but he can't fess up to his own blame the fact that he's the one that caused all this shit instead he's pointing fingers at everyone else coming after him i mean who the fuck does this guy think he is and he literally tells skinner we got to take care of it meaning the little girl and skinner's like no i can't i'm i'm so confused i just want to go let me go and there's a moment where otis starts to violently choke him where like he is choking him and he and Skeeter's like, get off of me, get off, freaking out, trying to push him off. And it's almost like Otis has this realization of what he's doing and he quits. And then he like comforts him. Did you notice that he like grabs him and like hugs him? He's like, it's okay. It's okay. Because they're kissing him on the head and everything. Yeah. He's like, we can't go to the police. We got to bury the body first and then we can do whatever you want. You want to go to the police? We'll go to the police, but let's, let's go back. Let's take care of this. Rebury the body. We'll do whatever you want to do, okay? So Skeeter gets up and agrees, and they go back to the grave, and Skeeter jumps in and is, is going to rebury the body, and he starts telling Otis about his cousin's place that's deep in the hills of Arkansas. He used to go there as a child, and now he wishes, and now he he wants to go there. He thinks it's going to be a, it would be a good place for him to escape. Well, unfortunately, Otis doesn't like this idea because he takes the shovel and bashes Skeeter's head in with it and then proceeds to bury Skeeter in the same hole with Bubba's coffin. Do you notice how his hat even sticks to the shovel after he beats him with yes. it? It's this little detail, yes. but like, ugh, like I'm guessing there's so much gore on it that it just like stuck to it. Ugh, that's such like a specific little detail that made my skin crawl. I can't believe he killed like this dude is unhinged. He's unhinged. 
I mean, he committed one murder in cold blood, but now to kill Skeeter because Skeeter is freaking out about what's going on. He's so afraid that it's going to be revealed that he really did kill Bubba in cold blood, that he is going to now kill his friend and then bury his body in the same grave. It's just so fucking morbid and despicable. He's such a like a uh, an extreme depiction of like a narcissist because in his mind everything needs to work in his favor. As soon as you know he starts to become the target, well, they have to they have to put an end to it. They have to you know they have to kill this person. They have to kill that person. It's this person's fault. But it's never ever 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 owned up on his end that he is in any way remorseful or sorry for what he's done. Instead, it's all about you know, stopping those who are out to get him, you know, now at this point here where the, the turn that the movie is about to take, seeing him finally in a place of fear is very satisfying. It's brief, but there is a moment coming up here where he realizes like, you know what, man, all of the shit that you have done, all of the horrible things you have done to people over the course of this film, it's going to come back and bite you in the fucking ass. And this is pretty satisfying what comes up here. Oh yeah, there's the moment when he does realize, damn, yeah, I'm I'm definitely getting my comeuppance, right? He realizes it, uh, but yeah, because he drives away from the scene in his mail truck, and he's just driving his mail truck recklessly down the road when he sees Mary Lee in the middle of the road, and you know he goes after her and he's chasing her at high speed. He loses control of the vehicle and it kind of goes off into a ditch and he falls out of it because you know, we know mail trucks don't have doors, so he falls out of it. And he looks up and he sees Marilee standing in the woods beyond where he's at. So he chases after her and she hides in like the scooper part of a tractor. And he immediately finds her and grabs her and like has her like pinned to the ground. Like he just had scooter. He's like, I know what you've done. I know what you've done. You know, he's violently being aggressive with her and she's screaming her little head off and all of a sudden the tractor behind him turns on all the lights turn on. It comes to life and you know, he kind of slowly turns around and realizes what's going on. So he stands up, let's go on Lee. She takes off running into the darkness and he's like, Sam. So now he's back to thinking it's Sam. He's like, Sam, I know it looks, I know what it looks like, but I, I know what it looks like, but Sam, you got to believe me. It's her. It's her. Well, the person, whoever it is in the tractor, isn't listening to him because it starts to come towards him. And we get this scene, pretty effective scene. It goes on sort of briefly. It's not a long extended scene, but I, th- I feel like it's satisfying of the tractor start to chase him. And it's at full, you know, the tractor is going at full speed. He's running through this pumpkin patch and there's a, several effective shots of this tractor, the, the blades uh glazing over these pumpkins and like splitting them in half and stuff. And the only thing that bugs me about this is the same thing that bugs me about any film where there's a car chase. It's like, why does the person like keep running in a straight line, get out of the path, start doing a zigzag, but he's like literally just running in a straight line tractors making progress on him. And he, there's this moment where he falls to the ground And he gets back up quickly and turns around to see how close the tractor is. And he's still running and he runs right into this scarecrow. We hear him get stabbed. Basically, it's like, and his face goes wide. His eyes go wide. Blood starts to come out of his mouth. And he looks, we realize the scarecrow was holding outright the pitchfork. And that poor Otis, I say that 
sarcastically, I fuck Otis, has run into this pitchfork and it's impaled him. This whole tractor pursuit, Troy, I mean, you're right. It is kind of brief, but God, they do a great job with it. You know, seeing the pumpkins like rolling beneath it and being like just uh, like sawed apart, you know, uh, through the because there's like the the dirt uh, tiller or whatever it's called at the back of it. That's like plowing up the dirt. Um, and you see the pumpkins like rolling through it and they're just like absolutely like fucking shattered, you know, erupted when they come out of it. You know that this guy, if he gets plowed over by this thing, it's going to be violent, you know? And so seeing this pursuit is really effective. He's terrified and rightfully so. And there is one shot I really want to acknowledge of the inside of the cab of the plow where you do see the one gear like you know, or the shift into gear, and there is nobody in the cart operating it or inside the cab operating the machine. You just see it go into mo- like it turn on and it goes into motion, and that's the first real, just I would say, blatant shot of something supernatural happening. I even rewound it in the moment. It was like, was there someone in there? No, it's definitely an invisible force that is turning this thing on. Um, and so, you know, in these last final moments, they finally give it to you. Like this is a supernatural entity that's operating this. Um, it is not a mask killer. And at first I wasn't sure how I felt about that, but you know what, man, I really, really uh, kind of appreciate the way this film concludes. It, it was not what I expected at all. And I dig it. I dig it. And seeing this final moment of him turning and seeing this goddamn scarecrow and dying in front of it and what happens here, these final moments with this thing are fucking effective. Yeah. A couple things. Yeah. I would have, in terms of like uh, me being selfish and wanting to see this guy die brutally, I would have, I would have loved to see him fall to the ground and then this thing run over him and he'd be devoured by the blades of this thing. That would have been beautiful in my mind in terms of what he deserves but all but i think it's like very poetic that he is killed with the pitchfork because that is the what he used to frame bubba so he's being killed by the the tool that that allowed him basically to get away with murder because that's what the judge bought the judge bought that that bubba threatened these guys with this pitchfork so it's very fitting that that's how otis dies as probably the the least painful i don't want to say painful but like the least traumatic death of of all of them he it's but it still is fitting for him right so otis pulls away from the pitchfork his stomach is is full of blood and he falls to the ground and he looks up at the scarecrow and he kind of like reaches up towards the scarecrow or points at it and he's like realizing oh my god it's you meaning it's you bubba and he dies we pan over to Mary Lee, who's hiding, you know, behind a corn stalk, and we get the POV of someone approaching her, and we hear the footsteps crunching, and she looks up. We see the scarecrow, and all of a sudden, his head turns towards her. Very creepy, and she gets this big old smile on her face. He hands her this flower, the same white flower that they were playing with at the beginning, and she's like, oh, Bubba guess what? Tomorrow I'm going to teach you how to play the chasing game. And it's just like tag. And then the credits start to roll. This final shot of the scarecrow coming to life and turning and actually, you know, interacting with the girl. I mean, what a creepy fucking ending. And the fact that this thing is so creepy looking, but still like is 
her friend. I mean, he's really not a malevolent force. He's terrifying, but he's in fact kind of the hero of the movie. And the fact that he like delicately just hands her this flower as a symbol uh, of their friendship. I mean, what a, str- a strangely poignant ending, you know, this moment between the two of them that their friendship managed to persevere even through his death. You know, he came back and and ensured that she was protected and that justice was served and she made sure that it was served. Like she helped him through it. You know, she ensured that, 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 that vehicle veered off the road. She lured Otis to his death. Like, let's, you know, let's be clear here. I think the girl knew what she was doing and, and good. Like it makes me like her all the more, you know? So, I mean, this is a really satisfying conclusion and, and, you know, seeing Otis die was definitely one of the most, celebrated moments i've had watching a horror movie in a while seeing that fucker drop to his knees and collapse before that scarecrow i mean maybe it wasn't the most again violent death but that that pursuit sequence was pretty damn satisfying and the fact that he died at that you know receiving that pitchfork through his torso the pitchfork that he planted in the scarecrow's hand to begin with so symbolic. I mean, really a strong finale, a strong conclusion. And I, I really left this movie feeling extremely satisfied with the experience I had, I had had. Um, and upon rewatching it, I, I enjoyed it all the more. I mean, wow, man, you know, I was worried that coming out of this, I, I would be attached to a podcast with a title of a film that I really didn't like. And that is not the case. Luckily, like I truly enjoyed this film. Um, and you know, I, I like that, uh, it represents kind of, I think our podcast in a way, and the fact that it's kind of an obscure selection, but it's one that deserves more attention. And I think those are our reviews that really like kind of stand out the most the ones I really, um, enjoy are the ones that you maybe don't anticipate, but then you sit down and you watch, you end up having a fucking blast with it and it deserves more attention. I think this movie deserves more attention. I'm proud that it is, you know, uh, the ins- inspiration for, our podcast's name. I think it's perfect. It's exactly what we are and the kind of films that we represent. Yeah. I'm glad you think so because I, I, like I said, I've this film, I saw it as a child and I remember like watching it like on TBS or something on, on reruns. It used to be shown every once in a while. And it really stuck with me. Like I said, there were a couple scenes that, that definitely stuck with me. The reveal of Bubba's eyes behind the scarecrow mask. I remember the hand grabbing Mrs. Ritter. I remember this whole final chase scene. I remember the silo scene. I mean, there are a lot of scenes that stuck with me, but I hadn't I hadn't actually sat down and watched this film for a long time. So being able to do so, you know, I mean, I haven't watched this film since way before we even started this podcast. So it's been forever, but I've always had a strong nostalgic feeling. There we go. We talk about Venom attached to this film. But watching it now, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of subtlety to this film. It's it's quite suspenseful. Performances across the board are great. The story is so simplistic, but also there's layers to it. You get some great buildups to the death scenes. And yeah, I'm definitely not ashamed that our podcast name is associated with this film. And coincidentally, I don't know if you know this or not, but there's a sequel to this, Dark Knight of the, uh, Dark Knight of the Scarecrow 2. It's directed by the... And written by the guy who wrote the screenplay for this original one. I haven't seen it, but from what I can tell, just by skimming online, it wasn't very good. Yeah, I've I've 
seen that. And, you know, when I looked into that, I, I tried to find some information on the sequel and, and it seems like it was not positively received, but I'm still curious to see it uh, just because I enjoyed this one so much. I'm curious how they build off the story um, and how it's related to it. But I mean, I dare say that's a podcast for another episode because right now I, I'm super satisfied with how this concluded and I don't need to necessarily follow it up with a negative experience quite yet. I want to bask in the glow of a film that I really enjoyed. No, I agree. I don't want I don't want this film to be tainted by a less than stellar sequel. So I'm perfectly fine with how this story ended. I know the sequel deals with like a family that comes to this town and weird things start to they start to experience weird things. Blah, blah blah. I don't really want to see that. I'm fine with how this film ended. I think this tells a complete story. It tells a satisfying story. So I'm good with it. I I enjoy this film. It's atmospheric, suspenseful, creepy. Uh, I don't know what more you can ask for, particularly for being a made-for-television film. So for our 100th episode and our namesake, I think we did a pretty good, or I think we made a pretty good selection. So guys, listeners, what are your thoughts on Dark Knight of the Scarecrow? Share them with us. Let us know what you think of this film. It's 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 It used to be kind of a little, yeah, like you said, under under the radar film, but I think it definitely has gotten some attention in the last few years, particularly with the, with the release, the blue a release or whatever it was, or the, the new restoration and it being on shutter and stuff. So let us know what your thoughts are on this film, uh, for our hundredth episode, give us some love. Like I said, check out our Patreon. We have uh, almost 60 extra episodes on our Patreon, including 21 full length reviews. Give us some love on Apple Podcasts, a five-star rating, a little review. Celebrate 100 with us. Woohoo! Yes, let us know what moments from Dark Knight of the Podcast stand out as your favorites. Be it a full episode, a specific moment within an episode, a certain joke one of us cracked, a title that we absolutely fucking hated, whatever. We would love to hear from you and know what it is that you've enjoyed about our show so we can give you more of the similar quality and caliber of what you're anticipating, what you're expecting as our fan base, because for the next hundred episodes, it's only going to get fucking better. Right, Troy? Absolutely. But we want to know what are some of your favorite past episodes, favorite things that we do, favorite quirks that maybe we have. Uh, I don't know. It'd be curious to hear, hear all your thoughts on us. It's what better way to, what better time to share them. But guys with that, we did it. We're in triple digits. Woohoo. Will we be back with our 101st episode, which which will be a surprise? We're going to make you wait for this one. Just, just as a little treat to get you ex- especially excited for what 101 is going to be. You'll find out the day we post it. That, and we just, we just need a, a minute to bask in the glow of making it to fucking triple digits. My God. I mean, give us a fucking break. We're, we're fucking up here shuffling it down to Buffalo for y'all. Tap dancing. Giving you high kicks, Troy and I. So listen. We promise this next episode is going to be fun. There may even be a guest or two in the near future. Something we haven't done for a minute. Super, super, super excited. Yay. So we made it. So guys, thank you for sticking with us for 100 episodes. And here's to 100 more. We love you. Keep listening. Share the podcast with your friends. Let us know your thoughts on Dark Knight of the Scarecrow. And with that, we bid you adieu. Adieu.